Thanks, Aaron and the rest of our worship team. Well, this is a special night uh, for me personally because I am not going to be sharing tonight. I'm going to be receiving, just like so many of you do, week in and week out. Uh, several months ago, several weeks ago, rather, I uh, had a little bit of a brainstorm in thinking about how we could have a fresh look at the cross, fresh look at the sufferings of Christ, and. Um, Uh, it just dawned on me that we might have a fresh perspective if someone who understood sufferings, physical sufferings, might give us some insights. Um, So I want to introduce who's going to share with us tonight a surgeon's perspective and reflections on Christ's suffering. It's Dr. Harlan Opie, who's a friend of mine and a longtime member of Mission Road. I could say a lot of things. I could tell you that he played... Uh, defensive end slash outside tackle at Nebraska, and that would be impressive. I could tell you that he's a surgeon, a general surgeon uh, in Overland Park um, and uh, Overland Medical Center, I mean, excuse me, Olathe Medical Center, and and I could tell you all of his resume, and you can read so many of his awards, and and that would be impressive. But what I want to tell you is, is more important than those things, and that is over the last five years of getting to know Harlan and his family. I know Harlan as a man who loves our Savior, And so what we're going to hear is a man who understands suffering, physical suffering, because of his his medical insight, and who understands also the Savior that he loves. You know, science has an interesting effect. Science can either draw you in to understanding the Creator, or science can actually make you stiff-arm truth and become an absolute atheist. I'm glad Harlan is on our side. He understands science and he understands the one who created those principles. So Harlan, why don't you come and share? Uh, this, as he's coming, I want to tell you that he, uh, at first, I, I thought it would be five or ten minutes, and uh, he's going to take longer than that because his heart is so full. Well, thank you, Pastor Rick. As, uh, as he said, tonight we're going to talk about Uh, the subject of the crucifixion of Jesus from a medical and a surgical standpoint. I've been a general surgeon for almost 20 years, and in that time, I've seen people traumatized, uh, injured, uh, critically ill uh, in many, many ways. And, And so in that way, I feel somewhat qualified to talk about the the trauma Uh, and what its effects would have been uh, on our Lord so long ago. I will be using the scriptural narrative from the New Testament to to set the scene for us and to hopefully help us understand even more what that event means for us as believers. Before I go any farther, I'd just like to say a word for those of you who have young children with you tonight. This is a deep subject Uh, this will be something you'll want to talk uh, to your children about tonight uh, after you leave um, as we look forward uh, to the celebration in two days uh, from now. Thursday, April 6th, A.D. 30, 1985 years, 11 months, and 27 days ago, Late afternoon, Jesus was in the upper room 
with the twelve disciples. He began by washing their feet. He knew of Judas's impending betrayal and had dismissed him to do what he had to do. Peter's denial was predicted and Jesus also predicted his death and resurrection once more in John 16, verse 16. The Lord's Supper was initiated at that time and certainly the disciples would have been somewhat confused at this point. Just a few days prior, they were witness to Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem and they had been discussing just where they were going to get to sit in Christ's court after the coronation. Yet over the next few hours of the reality of what's going to happen to our Lord must have been a big shock for them. After the time in the upper room, they left, and we see this recorded in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for just one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away one more time and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Christ returns to them three times, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. He calls out to God three times, and there's no answer. Jesus is alone here on earth. Jesus knew exactly what he was facing. If we look back up to verse 38 that we just read, it says this, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What was Christ experiencing at that time? We had, he had full knowledge of the torture that was coming soon. The emotional weight of Judas's betrayal, of Peter's upcoming betrayal, the burden of carrying the imputed sin for all mankind, past, present, and future. And we tend to minimize that in our mind. After all, this was God incarnate, right? But this was a God-man. 
to be our atonement, to take away the wrath of God the Father for us, he took on himself the weight of all of our sin. Not just our sins, he took that too. But he took our sin, our inherent evil. How do we put that in perspective? I mean, how do I put that into human measure? And I will fail miserably, but I have a, a, a crude equation where if we were to look at the inverse of the joy we feel at Christ's imputed righteousness that we don't feel, he would have felt the inverse of that joy. And you would take that and you would multiply that by the weight of the sin of mankind, past, present, and future. Take that quantity and raise it to the power of Christ's perfection. And we might just get a very small glimpse, a scratch of the surface of the emotional weight and stress that our Lord was under. How do we know that he was under emotional stress? Well, Luke, the physician, tells us he was. In 22, chapter 22, verse 44, Luke, the physician, says this, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. What does that mean? Is that just hyperbole? Is that Greek slang for the Lord was really stressed out? No, the Lord was suffering from hematidrosis. What is hematidrosis? This is a rare but well-described physiologic phenomenon. I did a literature search on this, and there are published cases within the past year, complete with pictures, describing the pathophysiology of this process, which occurs with extreme emotional stress. And we don't completely understand it, but what we know is it has to do with the fight or flight uh, response that we have, and that's mediated by our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. That part of the human body that controls the blood flow into the capillaries that feed the sweat glands under extreme stress in some circumstances can malfunction. And this causes the blood vessels to burst right around the sweat glands and patients literally sweat blood. This is a response to profound emotional stress, and this is what Luke, the physician, is telling us, that our Lord was suffering extreme emotional stress that we cannot even imagine. As they arose to meet the, their betrayer, probably around one in the morning, the chief priests and the temple officers and the elders and the temple guard arrived, and, uh, picking this up in John 18, Verse 4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Who do you seek? And, the, and they said, Jesus the Nazarene. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let those go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which your father has given me. Shall I not drink it? We know recorded in uh, the other Gospels that Jesus uh, heals uh, the ear uh, of Malchus. This was Jesus' last miracle before Easter morning. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8 who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was arrested and taken to the house of Caiaphas, probably around two in the morning, an angry mob uh, was there, a mob that was outside the law. There in Luke 22, verses 63, we see that the men regarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. We read right through that but what was actually happening to Jesus at that time? Do you think they were just kind of giving him little taps and bumps? No, they were hitting him in the head, in the body, sticks, fists. Jesus was almost certainly at least lightly concussed, if not uh, having uh, more of a concussion. From the house of Caiaphas, they moved to the temple, being tried by the, the Sanhedrin. At that time, Christ confirms that he is the Son of God. This becomes the blasphemy that fuels his ultimate delivery to Pilate. But before we go any farther, let's review. Here we are, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Let's review what is Jesus' condition right now. Physically, he's sleep and food deprived. He's dehydrated. I don't think they were offering him refreshments along the way. He is mildly hypovolemic. What does that mean? That means his blood volume is low because he is dehydrated. He's also had some de a degree of bleeding from the hematidrosis. Uh, it wouldn't have been a great amount of blood, but somewhat. He has pain from the beating that he's taken. And he is probably has at least a mild concussion. Spiritually, he's separated from God the Father. He is alone. He's carrying the weight of, sin of, of the sin of man. He has full knowledge of his coming torture. He suffered ridicule and mocking as the incarnate God. And he submitted to all of this voluntarily. I struggle to put this into perspective, into some kind of a measure that I can understand. You know, we hear stories 
of men who will die for a brother or die for a military comrade or die for a family member. And on my best day, I could die for my wife or my, my children, but could I die for a stranger, even a good stranger, or could I die for an enemy? In Romans 5, Paul tells us, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At dawn, six o'clock in the morning, Jesus was marched to Pilate. The Jews are convinced that he needs to be crucified because of his blasphemy, his claim of being the Son of God. Pilate tries to sidestep this. We see in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 1, then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Reading on, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him, had, had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at length, and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. When he returns to Pilate, Pilate's wife had warned him to not have anything to do with the holy man because she had had a bad dream about this. At this time, there were many people uh, in Jerusalem, and, and Pilate was, was somewhat concerned uh, that there might be a, a riot or an uprising. And this is not an apologetic for Pilate, but Pilate was likely on thin ice with Tiberius Caesar due to some mishandling of some prior incidences. And he was very much at the mercy of the crowd, the mob, the Jewish leadership that was demanding Jesus' death. So Pilate, hoping to pacify the Jews, gave the order to have Jesus scourged his hope being that maybe this would be enough after they saw it. It was likely that, that the instructions given uh, to those who were to carry out the scourging was that this was to be a severe scourging. Jesus would have been stripped naked. 
tied to a post with his hands outstretched, exposing his back. Jewish law would have limited the number of lashes to 40 less one, but the Romans were not bound by that. Two-thirds of these lashes would have been delivered to his back, and about one-third would have been delivered to his front. And that was by convention. That was by practicality, because had they delivered more to the front, it would have been almost certainly fatal in most circumstances. The instruments used for scourging were usually two. They used the birch stave and they used the flagrum. The stave, the birch stave, was simply a stick, a very strong stick. The flagrum was an instrument of torture. It was a, a wooden stick with three strips of leather that had been woven, and woven into those strips of leather were sharp pieces of bone and stone, and on the end of those leather strips was a weight. The lashes would have been delivered to Jesus and they would have exposed bone. Those who were, were adept at delivering this punishment could expose bone and kidneys, the bones of the hips, um, and they could take your abdominal wall right off the front and show your intestines to the world. If that sounds... If that sounds fantastic, uh, it certainly is. Blood loss would have been considerable. In addition to the muscle damage that we talked about, across his chest there would have been intrapleural hemorrhages and the development of pleural effusions. What does that mean? That means that within the, the chest cavity of, of Jesus, between his chest wall and his lungs, there would have been bleeding and there would have been the, the release of fluid that occurs from trauma. This would have been a, a, a clear fluid that would collect outside the, the lungs. There would have been fluid that would collect it inside the abdominal cavity from trauma to blunt uh, to uh, solid organs. There would have also been hemorrhage uh, around the kidneys in the back. Our Lord's condition after six hours at the hands of the Jews, being continually deprived of sleep, food, and water, in terrible pain from a beating and scourging, he is in severe hemorrhagic shock at this time. He has had a class three or four hemorrhage. What does that mean? That means that Jesus has lost 30 to 40% of his blood volume. Patients that arrive in that condition in a trauma ward are immediately intubated, put on a breathing machine, and vigorous resuscitation with IV fluids, blood, and blood products is administered. They are critically ill. They are sick as they're going to get. And if you do not intervene, these patients with class 3 and 4 hemorrhages, they die. Jesus was also in early acute renal failure, and while this would not cause severe pain, it would have contributed to his worsening overall shock state. Spiritually, he's now fully in the midst of his torture, separated 
from God the Father alone, mocked, ridiculed, spat upon by Caiaphas and Sanhedrin and Herod and Pilate, the Roman soldiers and crowds of people, submitting voluntarily to God the Father's wrath on our behalf. Jesus is brought once again before the angry mob and Pilate, hoping to avoid a riot, releases Barabbas, washes his hands, and turns Jesus over for crucifixion. Around 8 o'clock in the morning on Good Friday, Jesus' robe was placed back on him and a crown of thorns was placed on his head. This crown was probably more a bowl-shaped crown than a classic ring-type crown that we think about traditionally. We inherently understand that this would have been very painful, but let me explain it a little bit further. This crown with its, with its long thorns, not unlike what we were looking at earlier, would have pierced the Lord's scalp and it would have impinged upon the trigeminal nerve at its origin where it exits. What is the trigeminal nerve? The trigeminal nerve is the nerve that supplies the sense of touch and pain and pressure and temperature throughout our face and our forehead. Trigeminal, trigeminal neuralgia is one of the worst pains that a patient can have. Some of you may have had that. It's a transient but extremely sharp, severe, hot, burning pain. It would go throughout his face and scalp. Every time that, that thorny crown was touched, it would cause severe burning pain to be more or less constant across his face. The cross piece of the cross would have been placed across his shoulders. This weighed somewhere between 75 and 150 pounds, and the walk to Golgotha began. This walk was around 600 to 700 yards. A sign written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew with his crime, King of the Jews, was either hung around his neck or carried on a standard in front of him. En route to Calvary, Jesus became so weak that he could no longer carry his cross. This is evidence of the severity of the scourging that Jesus took. Jesus would not have been a frail man at the beginning of this. He was in uh, the, the prime of his life, and he had been walking uh, throughout the countryside for three years. He was robust before this began. He had been beat to the point that he could no longer walk and couldn't have carried the cross piece. The Romans would have been concerned about this, they did not ask Simon of Cyrene to help him carry the cross because they felt sorry for Jesus. They would have asked for help because they were concerned that the Lord wasn't going to make it to Golgotha. He, was, he had been beat that badly. The cross that Jesus was crucified on was most likely a tau cross, Greek word T. T-shaped rather than the classic Latin cross that we have as our Christian symbol. And it would have been 
in all likelihood a low cross, six to eight feet tall, rather than what we traditionally think of as the high cross, 12 feet or more tall. And this, this we understand because this was the, the, the thing that was commonly in place uh, in this area at this time, had to do mostly with practicality and the fact that wood was scarce. Jesus, uh, as well as any other victim, would not have been able to carry a Latin cross in excess of 300 pounds. The vertical pieces of the cross that were used for crucifixion were in place and they just stayed there for use. Upon arriving at Golgotha, sometime probably around 8.30 in the morning, Jesus would have had his robe torn off and this would have reopened the wounds from the scourging. He was naked again. He would have been thrown onto his back across the patibulum, that's the the, the Greek name for the Latin name for this cross piece. He would have been thrown on his back across this, and all of the lacerations in his back would have been opened again. His head would have undoubtedly hit the ground, causing extreme pain once again. One soldier would have laid across each arm as the third and fourth soldiers of the detail nailed each hand to the cross piece. The nail used would have been four to six inches long and about a half inch square and it would have tapered to a very sharp point. The nails would have almost certainly been driven into the flexor retinaculum of the wrist or the hand. Where is that? We're talking about right here. Not in the palm of your hand, not here, but here. We take this from multiple historical uh, uh, recordings of this, as well as some very early artwork that depicts this as well. In that location, when the spike penetrated this area, in that place lays the median nerve. When that happens, when the median nerve is, is divided or pierced or stretched or partially torn by this spike, a burning, fiery, scorching hot electrical pain would shoot up your arm all the way into your neck. To get some idea what that might be like, you can think about what it's like when you bang your ulnar nerve on the edge of the table, your funny bone, okay? That hot pain that shoots down your forearm into your pinky that lasts two, three seconds and really gets your attention. Imagine that, constant. And throughout Christ's six hours on the cross, every time he would raise himself to exhale, it would stretch that and repeat that pain. After he was nailed to the cross piece, the sign was nailed in the middle of the cross piece. And Christ, together with the patibulum, the cross piece would have been raised. There would have been a mortise, a hole, a square hole in this piece of wood, and he would have been raised onto the vertical part of the cross, and it would have been dropped into place. His knees would have been bent far enough to allow his soles, his feet to be flat on the vertical 
part of the cross on the post. And each foot would have been individually nailed right through the forefoot, your instep to the cross. While Jesus, on the, while Jesus is on the cross, there is more ridicule. Those passing by, Mark records, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting. In Luke, we see in uh, chapter 23, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Around noon, Jesus had been on the cross for three hours, Around noon, darkness fell over the land. Jesus continues to be on the cross, breathing between 8, 12, maybe 14 times a minute. Every time he raises himself to exhale, he has the severe pain of the lacerations of his back moving along the post of the cross. His his head would have undoubtedly touched the cross at times, and this would have caused severe pain. Somewhere around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in a loud cry, a shout, the Lord says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He complains of thirst, and someone offers him some sour wine. Shortly thereafter, the Lord yields up his spirit. He says, it is finished in a loud voice. He gave up his spirit on his terms. He delivered it, his spirit, just like he delivered himself to the cross. His legs were not broken because he was already dead. His side was pierced to confirm death. And we see in the scriptures that blood and water came out. And there's been a lot of conjecture over time. What does that mean? Blood and water came out. How can we explain blood and water came out? And I, I'm no Greek uh, scholar, but what I do understand is that when things are listed in Greek, that they aren't always listed in the order in which they happen, but rather in the importance or what is more prominent. So in this case, we can take it that the blood was more prominent, but not necessarily the first thing that came out. And it's, it's my opinion from all of the, the reading that I did that uh, 
Christ was pierced on the right side, on the low cross, with a, an infantry lance that a Roman soldier would have carried, six to eight feet in length probably. This was a maneuver that the Roman soldiers were, were well versed in to stab someone through their right chest into their heart. So with that, he would have, uh, the, the wound would have released uh, a clear fluid, a pleural effusion, which is clear. And then following that, when the heart was pierced, you would have had blood. Much has been made of, of this, and I think it is uh, that, that in reading the best theories that to explain this are, are simple, and they are this physiology that I've just described to you. The response to this we see in Matthew 27. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died and were raised to life, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. The centurion, the fifth member, the one who was in charge of the crucifixion, the exactor mortis, describes what he saw when Jesus died. In Mark 15, 39, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man is the Son of God. Did Jesus die on the cross? I think that he did. Following a long night of beating, ridicule, and scourging, walking, and crucifixion, there can be little doubt that he died that day. That he did not die after scourging alone is amazing to me. The exactor mortis, the centurion in charge of crucifixion, witness to hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions, knew when the act was accomplished. And the spear also argues against the fact that Christ may have survived. The swoon theory proposed in 1780s and written about as recently as two or three years ago. Books are still being published on this. The swoon theory, I'll mention only briefly, was first proposed in 1780. In 1780, we still believed in evil humors and miasma and bloodletting with leeches. This was 100 years before Pasteur and Koch proved the germ theory. So it's hard for me to put much credence in the theory of the swoon theory. Examining this account, I'm awestruck at the love that our Creator has for us. To study the torture and the death of the Lord is edifying. It's edifying because it is tangible evidence when, when my faith wanes, it's tangible evidence of His love for us. This was always the plan. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah records a very familiar verse to us all, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, 
we are healed. At the end of their time in the upper room, Jesus, in his prayer for us, in John 17, 25 and 26, Jesus prays this, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. He loved us to the point that he voluntarily went to the cross. And at the same time, praying to his Father in heaven, that by knowing him, Jesus, that we can have the same love from the Father that he, the Father, had for Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts for the miracle that is, e is Easter in just two short days, keep us mindful of just what kind of a price has been paid for us by the spotless, perfect Son of Man. Amen.